Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This month, we're focusing on the topic of research collaboration with China, how and when to collaborate with Chinese counterparts in R&D and issues that arise from that. In the third podcast on this topic, I'm in conversation with Professor Hugo de Boer, Walt Disney Chair in Global Media and Communications at Tsinghua University in China and Director of the China Media Centre in London. Professor de Boer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So when did you yourself first start collaborating with colleagues in China? I set up the China Media Center in 2005 and was required to make it pay in five years' time. The first client was the British Foreign Office, which commissioned us to brief Chinese media handlers on Anglophone journalism. So tell me a little bit about the China Media Center, what it is, how how it came about and how it's grown over the over the period? Well, I wanted to set up a China media centre for some time, and I finally found a university which would allow me to do it. And so that I set it up in 2005. And when we had run those courses for media handlers, we became quite famous in China. China's best known makers of drama and documentaries and newspaper editors and websites came to us for development training and advice. So we became profitable very quickly by doing something very useful to Britain too. We were introducing, we thought anyway, British creatives and media people to their Chinese counterparts. Let's talk a little bit about journalism. How is journalism and the media more generally in China different from the UK and similar countries to the UK? Well, I'll answer that with two points, if I may. The media in China, which is most popular, is drama. I would say that although about 400 people, 400 million people watch the television news each night, they're mostly much more, most Chinese people are much more interested in JAMA and indeed the very rich light entertainment fare than they are in news and current affairs. That wasn't always the case in the 1980s and 1990s, there was a lot of interest in current affairs, less now. But China's now the biggest producer of drama in the world. It's strictly regulated in terms of taste and decency. And there is an assumption behind it. Um, it's very varied. There's some terrific drama stuff, uh, very exciting police dramas, anti-corruption dramas, and so on and so forth, as well as romance and family dramas. But the assumption is that it's not that it is important not to give a bad role model, or that the more you talk about such subjects as, say, drug addiction or religious fanaticism or so on, the more likely it is that these lifestyles are to gain adherence. So you leave them out. And popular opinion, I might say, is very much in favour of this kind of regulation and pressurises the regulators to be strict. And the second point I'd make, which is probably more what you're expecting, is that the party under President Xi Jinping, as under Mao Zedong, emphasises that journalists must obey instructions as to what to cover, rather than show initiative. China at various periods in modern history has had critical and thoughtful media, but it's pretty difficult to be critical and thoughtful at the moment when the leadership is determined to impose its monotheism. So you're also a professor in a university in China. I'm interested a little bit in that experience, but but also your views on how Chinese universities have changed in, in the last, say, 10, 20 years. Yes, I am a professor in a Chinese university. In fact, many people would say it was the top university, unless you were a Peking university, in which you'd say Tsinghua was number two. But anyway, but I'm also a professor in the American college, the only American college 
in a leading Chinese university, Schwarzman College, which is a college of international relations. So it's not quite like being a professor in a Chinese university. To answer your question more accurately, there are vastly more universities now than 20 years ago. There are now 2,500 producing about 8 million graduates per annum. The universities used to be quite specialist. Tsinghua, for example, used to be an engineering university, but like many others, like many other less significant universities, they're all comprehensive. And they also include many more practical subjects. So for example, at Tsinghua, I've gone and seen boys and girls doing product design, museum management, and so on and so forth. In the past, they were very academic and would have eschewed such subjects. The third point I'd make is that in the UK, new universities in the 1990s brought about a dilution of quality. I think that's widely accepted. I hope so anyway. And I suspect that this has happened in China, although for different reasons. In the UK, many new universities packed in students of humanities and social sciences whose qualifications in the end didn't entice employers very much. But in China, there were probably just not enough good teachers to go around. And although the emphasis is always on STEM subjects, they do offer a greater likelihood of employment or enterprise. The quality was not as great as the universities might have hoped. Is that changing now? How, what would you say the quality of the teaching experience in Chinese universities right now is? Well, I'm not a STEM person, but what I hear from people in mathematics and sciences and so on is that the quality is increasingly high, that China is very good, partly because the schools provide an excellent basis. You know, the Chinese students come top in PISA scores in many parts of China, have done for many years, but it's in the humanities and social sciences where there are considerable weaknesses for pretty obvious reasons Mm. um, that Communist Party exerts a heavy control over the humanities and social sciences. Well, let's let's have a little think then about R&D collaboration with China, how that works, either more generally or specifically in the humanities and social sciences. I'm interested to what extent that those collaborations can just sort of grow organically, develop bottom up from researchers in the way that they might between the UK and researchers in in other countries. Uh, Or to what extent does it require a level of government intervention and support from both sides? You'd probably be better asking somebody from Imperial College this, but I will do my best. I'll make a general point, first of all, that enterprising institutions, institutions do need public investment in the making of new departments, colleges and universities for substantial R&D projects. It seems to me it's common to have public-private partnerships because Chinese entrepreneurs are very inclined to support education but we'll usually need the public sector to provide land and the existing university sector to provide IP. So that's the general point. Now, I personally have been focused on the creative industries and those of my Chinese students with startups have been greatly encouraged by receiving, for example, rent holidays, employment subsidies from the local governments and help from university incubators. And capital investment in China over the past 15 years or so has been readily available for startups. And Chinese venture capitalists appear to be much less risk averse, much more willing to give a higher proportion of the shares to entrepreneurs than their British equivalents. 
Now, we talked a little bit about the Chinese Communist Party and what, what you've said. And there are, of course, restrictions that you've outlined on what Chinese citizens can see and what they can consume. And there's also restrictions in terms of news media and, you know, a number of media providers such as Twitter or Facebook or Wikipedia are not available at all in China. How does that change the way that, for example, journalism is taught? And how does that change the way that some of the teaching occurs in Chinese institutions? Well, as usual, I think there's um, more than one answer, because in China, nothing ever quite happens in the way that it officially is supposed to. Chinese are remarkably flexible in every possible way. So uh, officially, nobody outside of designated research bodies is supposed to access what the government describes as the US-dominated and ideologically objectionable media. There are Chinese equivalents, and they're probably adequate for most people and most purposes. On the other hand, those for whom international communication is important for their work and study can always gain access to foreign media. Technically, it may be illegal, but my students don't care about that. My students at Tsinghua have had a thorough knowledge of UK screen media, and in the case of more the more politically minded ones, the FT, The Economist, and The New York Times as well. So journalism instructors have to teach the Marxist-Leninist theories of media and the rules of journalists. But the historians can tell the students about the richness of Chinese journalism under the Republic, and practice lecturers, often from the USA in fact, can ensure that young journalists know about different systems. Students generally mock and ignore the Marxist-Leninist teaching. Having said that, once they become journalists, they have to be very careful always playing edge ball, as they call it. They're always working out how they can stay within the rules and yet do what they think is right for a journalist to do. And how is that new generation then of journalists entering the Chinese media? How, how does it, is that actually changing the way that communications across China are going on? How close do they get to the edge? in their game of edge ball, I guess? Well, it's become much more difficult in recent years, I have to say. I can remember 10 years ago when I was first teaching in Tsinghua University, not in Schwarzman College, but in the College of Communications, there was a boy there who articulated wonderfully to me. Uh, we were on a trip to, a student trip to Tibet, where the professor of journalism, a Chinese professor of journalism, was keen that these boys and girls who are almost exclusively Han Chinese shouldn't understand Tibet. And this boy said to me, I said, you got I heard you got really good marks and you could have actually gone into a science faculty and done science. Why on earth did you choose journalism? And he said, he said, China needs people to tell the world about China. He said, there are lots of people who can be scientists and technicians and so on and so forth. But I decided, and my father's a scientist, he said, but I wanted to tell the world about China. I think what this illustrates, and it would be to many British people, Anglo-Americans, it would be risable, but it illustrates that people who become journalists are often doing it for patriotic reasons. They're not doing it because they want to expose how Boris Johnson went to a party or Xi Jinping did the equivalent. They're doing it because they want to help their country develop. Of course, they often come up against big problems because when they see something that they think is wrong, if the officials have got the power to squash them, they squash them. 
So there are contradictions there. But on the whole, they go into journalism out of a sense of patriotism and a desire to improve China. And that has been the case for the last hundred years. And what do you think the attitude of UK universities should be in terms of collaborating with China and Chinese institutions, particularly in areas in humanities and social sciences, where there are such differences of viewpoint and from a, from a Western perspective, restrictions on, on certain things? Yes, I, I should say, I, I sounded very negative about humanities and social sciences. I should say that at um, Peking University, Fudan University, Tsinghua University, at the top universities, the history professors uh, will, for example, will often just refuse to do what the propaganda department tells them. I, uh, one Peking University professor said to me, who's a, he's a specialist on modern Chinese history, he said, the propaganda department tells me what I should say, and I tell them, you tell that to the unimportant universities in the provinces. I'm Peking University. I'm going to teach what I think is right. So this is, uh, you know, there is a, a little interplay backwards and forwards. I think it's quite difficult working with the provincial universities, but men like that particular history professor will always be happy to work with Western scholars, if there are Western scholars in his area. My hope is that we can accelerate collaboration in finding solutions to things where it isn't so tendentious, environmental issues, climate change, biodiversity. Until recent years, all the scholars and campaigners in these fields were English or of English heritage. But the philosophy, as Chinese have come to realize, that stress is best humanity's relationship to nature is in fact Chinese. So they're stressing a Chinese approach to these issues. Anyway, none of our British good ideas will come to anything in the environment, environment area if we don't work with the colossus of China. So we ought to be promoting, it seems to me, Britain from a small country with great ideas, we should be promoting competition between these USA, between the USA and China in environmental responsibility rather than in nuclear weapons. That's the first thing. Uh, in my own field, the creative industries, I'd like to see many more Britons going to China for work experience and collaboration and using Chinese language to do so. China's hugely innovative and enterprising. Young people are better and better educated. We'll have a great deal to learn very soon, as the Chinese have learned a great deal from us in the recent past. I don't know if you have seen or our listeners have seen the Higher Education Policy Institute report launched last week calling for much greater knowledge of China and Chinese language in British schools. And at it, I heard Joe Johnson, chairman of the Times Educational Supplement, calling for our future scientists and engineers to be able to work in Chinese. And it seemed to me that he's really on the ball. This will provide a solid base or would provide a solid base for collaboration in the future that is not dependent upon Chinese nationals. In other words, Brits who can work with their Chinese counterparts. Two other points, if I may. In order to lay the foundations for such as this in the next five years or so, we need a national crash course in understanding China for our school children and the promotion of immersion teaching of Chinese in junior and secondary schools up and down the land. The reason I want this is that I hope that our country can benefit from the renaissance of Chinese culture and economy over the next century. I don't want us to be left behind to be a backwater, as might happen if we fail to comprehend the vastness of the changes that are taking place in Asia and the lessons that we can learn from China's achievement of the industrial and information revolutions 
that have gone about that have taken place in China in a mere 30 years. That's quite a, a challenge, and particularly the teaching Chinese language to uh, school students will be quite a change of approach in UK schools. Have you any feel for whether the government of the UK are moving in that direction or, or could see how that might take place? Because clearly at the moment, the emphasis is on European modern languages, for sure, in terms of teaching languages in schools. Looking from a Chinese perspective, I look at that and I say, oh, these are European dialects, or certainly French and Italian are, you know. The main language is English or Spanish, perhaps one should say equally, and the others are relatively speaking dialects in the sense that they don't have much wider purchase. Of course, in Africa, you can speak French, and in Libya, you can speak Italian, but it's not quite the same. Chinese is the number two world language. It's actually not that difficult to learn as a spoken language. There are some problems with the, uh, with the writing and reading system. And yes, it's, it is a big challenge. What I suggested would be a very big challenge. I think there are people in British government and certainly among in the diplomatic corps and so on, and certainly in business, who profoundly hope that this is going to happen. And the EPI report showed that very well. Some of our more enlightened ministers, Nick Gibb, lately the schools minister, recently the schools minister, John Nash, who was also a schools minister, David Willits when he was universities and science minister, and uh, Lord Adonis as well when he was a schools minister. All these guys realised the importance of China and the importance of understanding China. Unfortunately, it's a rather depressing scene. A very good little book has been written by Kerry Brown of King's College on the future of Chinese-British relations, in which he lambasts us for our complete disinterest and indifference to China's development, <laughs> which is, seems to be very depressing, but unfortunately very true. So there's a lot of work to be done, but there are people who want to get it done. And um, I hope to work with them to try and make sure that future generations of uh, Youngsters learn Chinese. My grandson is in an immersion Chinese-English school, age six. He speaks to me in Chinese from time to time. And I'm very proud of it. And I hope there are going to be lots more of them in the future. Fantastic. Well, that's a whole programme of activity. We will have to see how that goes on in the years to come. That's all we've got time for today. But uh, Professor Hugo de Berth, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Professor Hugo de Boer, Walt Disney Chair in Global Media and Communications at Tsinghua University in China and Director of the China Media Centre in London in the UK. The topic of UK-China research collaboration is being discussed at an event being organised by the Foundation on the 27th of April. Details of that event and how to attend, which is free, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on our website are details of all our other events, all our blogs and all previous editions of this podcast. Until the next time, goodbye.